invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. That's where we're at. <clears throat> Near the end of that chapter. And by way of reminder, or for some of you perhaps introduction, uh, we are in a series that I've entitled, We Have a King, because it chronicles in some ways the beginnings of Israel's journey as a monarchy. And we know that even though a bunch of people approached the prophet or the figurehead of leadership, if you will, at the time of Israel, Samuel, and they said uh, to him, hey, give us a king like the nations have. Israel is doing this in ignoring a very vital fact, and that is Israel already has a king. His name is Yahweh, and this is why when Israel does this, God, Yahweh, tells Samuel, the prophet, the leadership figure at the time, 1 Samuel 8, 7, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. Well, now I invite you to stand as we merely start our study together, looking over a kingdom that was built, uh, a summary of the author that 1 Samuel the author of 1 Samuel gives us concerning King Saul of his kingdom. And we'll just read the very end of 1 Samuel 14. I intend to go a little bit into chapter 15, but let's read 1 Samuel 14, verses 47 through the end of the chapter. It says, When Saul assumed the kingship, Over Israel, he fought against all his enemies in every direction, against Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he caused havoc. He fought bravely, defeated the Amalekites, and rescued Israel from those who plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkushia. The names of his two daughters were Mereb, his firstborn, and Michael, the younger. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Saul's uncle Ner. Saul's father was Kish. Abner's father was Ner, the son of Abiel. The conflict with the Philistines was fierce all of Saul's days, so whenever Saul noticed any strong or valiant man, he enlisted him. As always, just read those names fast and confident. Nobody knows if you are pronouncing those right. Let's read. Uh, let's pray. Father, you put every word in the Bible before us for a reason. Uh, I believe the Holy Spirit inspired and superintended, if you will, the the writing of these scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is present with us today. And, And Paul tells us if we have the author of these words present with us, you're able to give us the exact knowledge and wisdom you want to give us as we read and study. So we pray, Father, that we would have open hearts and ears to hear your words. I pray that your words would be heard and not mine. And I pray that you would be glorified and the body would be built up. Uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you to do this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What kingdom are you building? What kingdom do you want the kings over you to build? What kingdoms are the kings over you building? 
And what kingdom is God building? And whose kingdom will last? What kingdom are you building? And the reason we we get really a summary, it seems, of the military exploits of King Saul is because Samuel revealed that Israel wanted a king primarily for this reason. 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20 tells us, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. This isn't lost on Samuel. And when Samuel is giving what I would liken to in some ways, kind of a a farewell address that outgoing presidents make, Samuel decides it's a great time to give a sermon. (laughs) Even a stinging sermon as to the bad decisions that Israel has made. And in 1 Samuel 12.12, Samuel credits Israel's general fear of a neighboring country's king. In fact, if you will, kind of a biblical Attila the Hun, except this king had a much fiercer name, Nahash the Ammonite. And the Bible tells us that he was known to gouge out right eyes as he takes over tribe after tribe. Kind of a weird thing. There is reasons for that. I won't go into it. But Samuel says in First Samuel 12, 12, and he's talking to basically at least all of Israel represented. And he says, But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, No, we must have a king reign over us even though the Lord your God is your king. That's the kingdom that Israel wants. Present, physical, tangible safety. Yahweh required repentance, prayer, faith in an invisible God who would provide judges or deliverers just in time. But Israel wanted a physical, physical, tangible, flesh and blood warrior king who they could see they could know and keep watch over to know that, okay, he's preparing the troops. He's going to save us. What kind of kingdom are you building? What kind of kingdom are you contributing to? See, I look around and I know this. Maybe it's not right now, at least, faith in a big military because we see an impending threat. But is it faith in an ideology? Is it faith in a political group because maybe they see the threat and we, and we trust them? Maybe it's, it's hope placed in a cause. Maybe it's hope placed in people who profess to be Christian and they have all the answers and you haven't noted the red flag that they're proposing Jesus plus something else is the answer. Maybe your kingdom is less massive and less spectacular. And the bar is lower, and the kingdom is actually just remoteness, comfort, complacency. I remember my dad while in the Air Force. I believe he knew a commander or general, whoever. And this man was commenting on the Middle East, mind you, his late 80s, early 90s. And uh, and how people over there are always ready to seem to go to war against each other. And the general, the commander, took an outlook that was fairly common and And that guy said, I think they should just fence all the Middle East in and then let them have it out and they'll just go mop up after they bomb each other out and uh, kill each other to death. And maybe in less violent terms, that's your outlook. 
just leave me my farm, my neighborhood, my personal freedoms. God, you take care of everything else. And I'm sorry, thank God that Jesus didn't come to Israel, to Galilee, to Judea, and he never said to his father, just give me my carpentry business and a family and I'll live and die quietly and you take care of the rest, Father. What's your kingdom? What are you building? Saul had his kingdom, a militaristic one. Perhaps King Saul realizes this. He wouldn't put it this way, but in our terms, he's the George Washington of Israel and he needs to make his mark. He must show the nations around him that when Israel chose monarchy, they chose glory. They chose victory. They chose to strut their stuff. But there is going to be a clash over kingship. Because although Yahweh appointed King Saul, Yahweh is still claiming and he still knows that he's king over Israel. Yahweh, God, is about to give orders as we come to chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and we read, Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. That's what Everett read about. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Since that settles comfortably with you, I guess we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Now, the NIV would more accurately give us verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord and you say that seemed pretty close to the CSB how is it more accurate in the Hebrew Samuel's speech begins with the pronoun for me as the NIV said I and the placement of words in Hebrews in in Hebrew I should say usually suggests prominence so make no mistake Samuel is kind of pulling a job the Lord gives and he takes away Samuel He's made you king, and he's the real king of the kingdom. So listen to his words, Samuel, Saul. But Samuel put I first. And so Samuel might be leveraging some power, not because Samuel is power hungry, but because Samuel is giving Yahweh's commands. And so what are God's commands? Again, verse 2. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. God's prefacing His commands here with some history. It's the history, again, that Everett read for us, where the Amalekites sprung an attack on Israel, and at the end of the battle, though Israel was victorious in that engagement, God still said, I won't forget this. (laughs) You'll be sorry. That's my lousy way of putting it. Now, that was hundreds of years prior to Saul. The Bible would suggest upwards of 400 years prior. Now, does this mean that God holds grudges? Does this mean that God is angry for a long time and He likes to hold descendants who never did what their ancestors did accountable for their ancestors' sins? Well, a few things here. First, when God decrees judgment against somebody, hundreds of years from now, but He's announcing it now, that's actually a call to repent. Repent. 
Paul says in Romans 2, 4, and 5, or do you despise, Paul's talking to some Jewish people here who are guilty of sins, and he says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Did you hear the blame in that? I've met some people, hardly aware of of Christianity, willfully ignorant of anything the Bible would really teach, and they just kind of lackadaisical say things like, well, I'm sure God's got a special place in hell for me. Or, yeah, by your terms, I'm ending up in hell. And it usually comes from a heart of disbelief or maybe of carelessness. But I'll be the first to admit that the fact that I got breath in my lungs is a grace and kindness of God for me to repent of sins that I shouldn't be committing. Every time you hear the gospel or feel the Holy Spirit prick your soul or or announces judgment, it's not meant to send anyone into stagnation and guilt and, and cowering under the punishment, I'm getting hell. No, rather it's an invitation to repent. See, time is grace. And grace is kindness and invitation to repent. Now, coupled with this, as we go back to what we're talking about, the punishment of the Amalekites, God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge. The Amalekites has had at least 400 years to repent. 400 years. I don't, I'm not going to last that long. <laughs> we're going to meet another group of people who would have been on the war path that King Saul pardons because they were nice to Israel in the past. That could have been the Amalekites. The Bible would give us other occasions between uh, the first engagement with Moses and this engagement with Saul where the Amalekites remained bitter enemies against Israel. Their thinking was, their Hatfields were McCoys, right? Their Boston Bruins were Montreal Canadiens. Sorry, that's a hockey rivalry. No. Um, But the point is this. Simply because God knew that the Amalekites would never relent from their sins against Israel does not mean that God wished, foreordained, wanted, or decreed their sinfulness. He only decreed their judgment because He knows their self-chosen sinfulness. Does that make sense? If I... Tell Calvin, don't do that again. You're getting a spanking. I don't want him to do that again. (laughs) He's still going to get a spanking, though, (laughs) if he does it again. Because of their own hardened and unrepentant hearts, they've stored up their own wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. What is God's righteous judgment? Verse 3, back here in our text. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep and camels and donkeys. Don't you love these Old Testament texts? I don't. How do we explain things like this to make us feel better? First of all, we shouldn't unpack Scripture in the way that makes us feel the best. (laughs) Rather, we should read and unpack Scripture in the way it was intended to be delivered to us. The emotions we feel should yield to God. We should not require... God's word to yield to us. That's kind of what Saul is about to do here, and it's not going to go well for him. Israel 
is Yahweh's people. And in this day and age, this day and age, not our day and age, many nations claimed a national deity. Now, for example, the Philistines are another nemesis of Israel, and they worshipped a fish god and would often fight in the name of Dagon, their fish god. And in some cases, a nation would fight with a holy war concept of placing something under the ban. Some old translations will say, instead of completely destroy everything, it'll say place under the ban. And that is taking goods that would be usable and people that could be spared, but instead of using those goods or letting people go free or exiling them, the warring army would sacrifice them by way of obliterating them or annihilating them by means of saying, this is given to the God I'm fighting for. Now, we might ask then, why does Yahweh, who, according to a later prophet named Ezekiel, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, why would he command such a horrific, violent, bloody practice from his people? Now, you're going to follow me here for a bit. The book of Deuteronomy is in some cases a record of Moses' last sermons. Moses covers a lot of ground that was already covered in Exodus and Leviticus and the laws. Two passages that I would invite you to to read up on later is in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 18, I should say, and then the end of Deuteronomy 25. But let me summarize them for you. Deuteronomy 20, in the passage I made mention to, we do find God offer a bit more of a general rule of what we might expect. In other words, if you approach a city and they don't surrender, you have to war against it, spare the women, spare the children, take the plunder, overthrow them as civil as you can, kind of, is what he's saying. But at the same time, God does say to leave no remnant of the pagan people you're wiping out to take over Israel. In other words, what he is saying is, we don't want to hear about the Canaanites and the parasites coming up with that phrase. There is no parasites. <laughs> but we don't want to hear about any more Canaanites left over in the land that Israel took over. We don't want them to make new colonies in some other region. God said when you take out the Canaanites, of those who survived the war, make sure their race dies in your borders. No more Canaanite country ever. Why? Deuteronomy 25.18 so that they won't teach you to do all the detestable acts that they do for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God. This doesn't seem to faze people in our day and age. There are actions that people do that are not okay. There are behaviors that people do that are detestable and so sinful that God would rather wipe out those who do it then, in the name of grace, mercy, and love, let that behavior persist. Now, when people hear this, me too, we're quick, we're quick to say, well, that's just not nice. Because apparently we can judge God all, all of a sudden. But the Bible, God, who imagines, imagine this, God thinks differently we do than we do. And he presses this issue unapologetically. It's interesting, in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it opens with seven letters to seven churches. And listen to what King Jesus has to say to one of them in a town called Thyatira. What was happening at Thyatira? Apparently they were taking lessons from the pagan temples down the road and entertaining some sexual perversion in their Christian church. And what does Jesus say? Revelation 2, 19 and 20. 
First he says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. That's a good commendation, right? This is Jesus saying, you're a church, way to go, you're doing good things. Then, verse 20, he says, But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Did you just hear that first phrase of Jesus? This I have against you. You tolerate. That's kind of a virtue word in our day. Is it not? Don't be intolerant. (laughs) Here it is in the Bible. Jesus presents counterculture. Don't tolerate. Now, I'm sorry to say that Jesus has not bought into tolerance. Apparently that wagon passed him by and he decided not to hop on. There are some things that they just need to stop. Don't hear me wrong. Some people seem to think that intolerance means I want you to die if you don't. Jesus wants you to die if you don't. If you're hearing it that way, you're hearing it wrong. Jesus doesn't tolerate sin. And he wants people to stop sinning so they don't have to die. (laughs) That seems loving to me. Hey, Amalekites, stop putting your sons and daughters into the fire to sacrifice to your own gods or I will wipe you all out. (laughs) Hey, Amalekites, stop giving each other STDs with your weird pagan sexual worship or I will wipe all of you out. Jesus even personalizes this when it comes to personal sins. What does Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your feet causes you to sin, cut them off. Well, is Jesus advocating self-mutilation? No. He is advocating intolerance, though. He's advocating extreme measures to stop sinning. Why don't you drink alcohol? Because I came from a family of alcoholics. I find myself addicted to less intoxicating things. I don't want to sin with alcohol. (laughs) Is it against your religion to drink a beer? No, it's fine in moderation. I'm just intolerant of entertaining the temptation to sin. Meanwhile, the next Christian over could have a beer once a day, not get drunk. Glory be to God, the Bible's fine with that. Hey, why don't you own a smartphone or a computer? Because I was addicted to porn, and that's a filthy habit, and God and I are both intolerant of that sin. Your religion is against smartphones and computers? No. My God is against sinning. And I had to cut off the proverbial hands, eyes, and feet that caused me to sin, And that's why the next Christian over owns a smartphone and a computer. Glory be to God, because they don't entertain those sins. The Amalekites have had at least 400 years to repent. Who knows what pagan practices they do, but their day is up. If you go back and read the passages, one in Deuteronomy 25, it's final judgment. It's God saying, God will not forget. Their days are numbered. I have a day on the calendar for their annihilation. And Samuel said here to Saul, Spare no one, it's D-Day. And it's interesting that such a prophetic day of judgment that God is leaving up to Saul. Here's what Saul does. Verse 4, back in 1 Samuel 15. Then Saul summoned the troops and counted them at Telaim, a city in the region of Judah, close where the Amalekites live, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek, Now, interesting thing, the Amalekites are nomadic people. So it could be that this is their city at a given moment. Anyways, when Saul brings his army and he 
set up the ambush in the wadi. That's a valley. I don't know about you. I don't use wadi every day, so I had to look it up. <laughs> he warned the Kenites, Since you have showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Get away from the Amalekites, or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Now, I mentioned this earlier. This is the group of people that Saul is pardoning, the Kenites. And he says, I'm here to obliterate everything, and we'll find out in a few seconds he doesn't. But anyways, he says to them, you are not the Amalekites. You've treated us better in the past. We don't want to hurt you. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a Kenite, according to Judges 1.16. There's also a story in the Judges about a gal named Jael, who was a Kenite. She violently killed an oppressor who had been attacking the Israelites. That's in Judges 4. So the Kenites have generally been an ally of the Israelites who happened to be living with at this moment in time with the Amalekites. So Saul says, it's showdown time. The Amalekites got to go. And if you don't want to go where they're going, why don't you go? That's how it goes. And so the Kenites left. And we read in verse 7, Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. Now this, if you know your geometry... And you think of Saudi Arabia, this little thing, it jumped. Geography. I don't have, man, all right. Geography. If you know geometry too, that's great. But if you know geography, you know where Saudi Arabia is. What the, the campaign that Saul did is pretty much the whole part of Saudi Arabia, the whole northern part from Israel all the way to Egypt. So this is a big campaign. He capt- verse 8, he captured king, of, uh, king Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams, and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Now, if some of you, if you're like me, Now, as the author unfolded what Saul did kill and what he didn't kill, perhaps you had a little bit of hope. Oh, he spared a few things, and we're thinking of women and children. But it's not listed in the things he spared, and the rest of the chapter tells us that Saul's in trouble. He didn't follow out Samuel's orders. And then we'll hear for a second time in the whole book of Samuel that uh, Saul's lost the kingdom. But here's what I was thinking, because I'm sinful. If you're going to disobey and lose the kingdom, at least do it for reasons that would make me feel better. (laughs) But no, he spared the king of the Amalekites, and some commentators wonder, if is he going to parade Agag around like a trophy? Look, I wiped out the Amalekites. And he spared some livestock. He's going to give an excuse later in the text saying that he intends to use the livestock to sacrifice to God ceremonially, though I personally wonder if that's a lie. But for the most part, the text seems not to only indicate that he killed everything else, that is, every other person, man, woman, child, infant, Secondarily, the text unflatteringly categorizes such people as worthless and unwanted things. As in, that's what Saul gave for an offering. It was of no great sacrifice as far as Saul is concerned. Sometimes we're guilty of that too in our own offerings. God wants the first fruits and us to give sacrificially. Sometimes we're turning in at night, and though we've wasted time on movies and reading hobby magazines or peruse the Internet for hours, we feel better when we semi-nap through five minutes of reading the Bible before drifting off to sleep. We really gave it our all, didn't we? 
sacrificed our precious time to read the Bible? How about when we give monetarily to offering? Well, I see all the bills are paid and I, and I do have a little bit of extra money and we won't go out to eat this month because I'm a tither. That isn't sacrificial. That isn't the point of offering. Did you know that God does not need money? I don't know if you knew that. He kind of made the world. <laughs> Man, I'm short on cash this week again. <laughs> what am I going to do? He doesn't need anything. But he loves us and he's called us to love him. And we know we love him when we do what he commands us. And we do the things that he commands us to do when it's hard, uncomfortable. What kind of kingdom are you building? Some of us, here's what I fear. It's a kingdom like Saul's. It's a kingdom where I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to say I'm a Christian, but I also want to live in some areas like I'm not, but I want to feel comfortable with that. I want God to rubber stamp me. I want God to just, you know, God, just save me. That's all. I don't want to fry in hell. I don't want my life to be a mess. So just save me and then get out of my face. You don't know our king, if that's how you feel. We're so used to earthly kings where we study from afar and we make our best educated guesses. This looks like a person who's not going to send our nation into a black hole. Let's, let's vote for him. Darn, they lost. Well, I'll try in four years. Or, or when they do get in, great, I'll sleep easy and that's that. And we transfer that to God. Oh, just pray to him. He saves me. Maintain a bit of a relationship. But I'll sleep easy knowing that I'm saved. And that's not as far as our king wants to take it. We're talking about our creator here. We're talking about the universe maker, the star breather, the all-knowing and all-powerful one here who more than just wanting a relationship with Israel, now he wants a relationship with mankind. We cannot 100% fathom the mind and position of God, but perhaps in a small way I have two illustrations for you, and these are the only illustrations I have, so I'm sorry. You'll have to bear with me. What if the things that you and I create could talk and relate? So I'm a sermon writer, and what if I wrote my sermon and I got up to preach and I looked at my sermon manuscript and it's telling me, I know what you wrote, but I made a few changes, alterations. You're not in 1 Samuel today. I'd be like, no, I made you for a specific task. I made you the way I wanted you. What if you made a house and you know which way you made it, and you went to move into that house, and the house was like, we know you put the front door up here, but we prefer the front door into the bathroom. And so you're like, no, you're not supposed to have a mind of your own. I made you a certain way for good reason. You planted a barley in a field, but apple trees are growing instead. And you say, no, I wanted barley. And we make our things the way we make them for good reason. And if we're good creators, we create our things in hopes of them flourishing and fulfilling their purpose. I sweat, headache, and, and whatnot over my sermons, and on Sunday mornings it's all I got, and when people give feedback and say, hey, that helped, or when God assures me I have used it for my purposes, I'm content. The end result of the thing I worked on matched what I had in mind to begin with. If your field produces your crop in good measure, you're happy. If your house doesn't change the front door on you, you're happy. Second illustration, if you have kids. I'm not one of those dads who have my boys' jobs figured out, nor their sports or even their interests. I'm a pretty simple guy. I just have one priority for their lives. 
but I know that this is the big priority and the one priority that the world in its fullest strength will endeavor to rob. I want my boys to love Jesus. They can love Jesus while farming. They can love Jesus while flying to the moon if Calvin had his way right now. (laughs) He loves space. They can love Jesus while working at a restaurant in a big smelly city that I would hate to visit, but I would visit for my son anyways. If they love Jesus, I'm happy. Because I trust Jesus to sort the rest of their lives out the way he deems fit if they love him. If you are a parent, we do all have expectations, wishes, desires. And perhaps as my boys grow, I might get a little bit more selfish and have some other aspirations. But when they don't fulfill those aspirations, what do we parents do? You know, I had some hopes that you're not fulfilling. I brought life to you, I raised you, I invested in you, and you thwarted those plans. God is our creator, and he's our father. He has created us, and I know you're all perfect, so I'm just going to make this about me right now. He's created for me for things that I don't always fulfill. He's my father, and as my creator, he doesn't have wishful aspirations that may or may not fit me. He has perfect aspirations. And as creator, I would say he's not highly qualified. He's solely qualified to see how my life might thrive. Does that make sense? Yet sometimes I can act as if I were a sermon that I made saying, well, Kevin, now that you wrote me, but I think I'm going to go this direction. Sometimes I have a tendency to say to the very one who created me and knows me more than myself, who do you think you are telling me what to do? What are you trying to do? Direct my life as if you made me with a plan and purpose? Well, funny thing. (laughs) When this God becomes flesh and starts gathering disciples, what does he say to them? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Oh, I wish a church would base their name on that title. (laughs) I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. King Jesus is a king who doesn't see us as servants. But he, through his word and through his Holy Spirit, has made known to us his intentions. And his intentions are to love, to serve, to see us thrive, to command us, not because he enjoys power trips, but I'll just be the first to admit, I make dumb choices left to my own devices. Sometimes, quite literally, devices. Sometimes I can spend hours on myself, which helps me but helps nobody else. Sometimes I can get interested in things or involved in causes that can be very self-serving. And the thing is, is in God we find we were created like Jesus to be others serving, not self-serving, to be selfless and not selfish. What kind of kingdom are you making? How many of us have claimed to carry out God's orders, but we reserve some plunder for ourselves? Yes, I'll do the God thing, but just don't look at this closet, God. I have a little kingdom going and you have access to my lands, but there's a few buildings that I have locks on. And we fool ourselves because we know God sees all and knows all, but we think he's pretty tolerant. We think he's okay with us keeping some of the plunder. When in reality, we're tolerating things that God does not tolerate. I'm talking about the things that you know the Bible talks about and you know how God thinks about them, but you do them anyway. 
Don't meddle with me, Kevin. Your beef is not with me. Your beef is with the God of the universe who made you. Who knows how you will best thrive. Who knows how you will best flourish. And the only reason he's intolerant of the things that you tolerate is because the things that you tolerate aren't things that are serving you any good down the road. They are quick comforts, fast guilty pleasures, but you have kids watching you take lessons, taking lessons. You have grandkids watching you taking notes. Depending on what you tolerate, you have health issues in the chute ready to repay you so kindly for the way you're paying your body right now. And God's intolerance is to the point of wrath. He hates sin. When God made a perfect paradise of a garden and two perfect people who messed it up with one bite of forbidden fruit and literally caused the world to fall into the world we have now, you probably know why he hates sin. You know why he has a wrath that says, leave no remnant of possibility for my people to be infected with the sort of sins godless people do. And in Christ we know that God's intolerance, his wrath is met with and channeled by his unconditional love. The only reason that God so freely burns with fierce anger and wrath against sin is because he knows ultimately he himself will pay the cost. He himself will bear the sin, will bear the punishment. He himself will be the proverbial Amalekites that aren't spared. Jesus wanted to be spared. He said before the cross, Father, take this cup from me. But the Father did not do that. So instead, Jesus willingly, voluntarily, by his own will, went to the cross and he became my he became the child sacrificer. He became the rapist. He became the adulterer, the fornicator. He became the Amalekite. He became the Saul. On the cross, Jesus became every despicable thing as the full measure of God's wrath was poured out on him when it should have been me. He did it so God can spare me. So God can spare you. So God doesn't have to tolerate my sin but instead can command me to overcome my sin while telling me, I paid for those sins that you tolerate. They're powerless to have you now. They have my permission to die, so do they have your permission as well? Because Jesus wants to invite us to a better kingdom. Jesus wants to invite us to a kingdom that isn't so self-centered and self-serving. Jesus wants to invite us to a kingdom where sins are forgiven. And we literally get to join him in saving the world. That sounds like a kid's comic book, but it's true. <laughs> we get to join the Creator who created us and the Father who knows us and loves us and His purposes so that we might thrive and flourish in the plans He has for us. So here's what I'm going to not ask, well, I guess ask in closing. Will you surrender the kingdom? This is going to mean different things for different people. But the bottom line is this Who is your king? And if you say, well, of course, King Jesus, what's your kingdom look like right now? Are you following the orders that he gives? Or are you doing so with your own alterations? Are you tolerating things that God would not tolerate? Surrender the kingdom. The kingdom that King Jesus has in mind is far, 
far better than what you or I have in mind. Let's pray. Father, um, we look at King Saul and if we blow out all the context or maybe if we even bring in the context and, and study Saul and the story that he's in, we find we have a lot of things to relate with. It's easy to be judgmental. I would have done it this way. He's not doing it the right way. Well, it's easy for me as the pastor to identify more than I want to. Father, many of us are building our own kingdoms, and sometimes, like Saul, we're trying to have our cake and we're going to eat it too. Oh, yeah, I'm a believer. God, don't look at this. Don't, don't worry about that. Don't tell me what to do here. You're not our king if we say you are our king, but we don't do what you command. So, Father, I pray that for those of us who are convicted and, and need to surrender our kingdom, that we would make this day where we do surrender it. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect and flawless in the future, but it means that you know our heart, and our heart is to follow you. And our heart is a desire for your grace and mercy and for your Holy Spirit to enter us and to work out your will in our lives. Father, we want to flourish. We want to thrive. And you are our creator and our father, and you have plans and purposes for us. And those are the best plans and purposes because you're the one who created us to begin with. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. I also ask now that as we look forward to eating together and sharing fellowship, that you would bless our time, bless our food to our bodies. Um, and may we make lots of money for good reasons. <laughs> and we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.